Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians as we continue to worship together. Brian just mentioned briefly uh, on his way out, uh, he forgot to mention the men's wild game feast tonight. So if you were not aware, we are having, as I just said, a men's wild game feast here. Start time is 6 o'clock. Is that right? 6 o'clock. If you haven't signed up yet, Brian assures me that there is plenty of room. So just show up, bring a friend. If you would like to contribute something by way of food, I don't know if there's still a need. I'm guessing at this point there isn't. But if you want more information, then feel free to contact, uh, contact Brian. Uh, I have my watch with me this morning as I take it off and put it where it usually belongs so we won't have... Laura making her way up here with it. Um, that was a little unsettling, wasn't it? It was also a little disconcerting that, that no one did anything. My, my security detail. That, that, that a woman with a half-crazed look in her eye could have made it that close to me on a Sunday morning was very disconcerting. I love you too. Yeah. But I have my watch so you can rest assured. Have you found 1 Corinthians? Our business this morning is going to take us to chapter 9, but I actually want to begin back in the first chapter with just one verse by way of reminder, setting the context. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, writes Paul to the church at Corinth, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so notice his urgency. I appeal to you, or we could term it, I plead with you, I beg you. Notice his authority. Brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice his call to unity. Number one, that all of you agree. Number two, that there be no divisions among you. And number three, that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. And so, evidently, there is a problem in the church at Corinth. And as we have made our way through the first eight chapters... And as we continue to make our way right through to the end, it becomes pretty clear what that problem is. There are divisions. Why are there divisions? It becomes pretty evident as we read the letter that there are a number of believers, brothers, in the church at Corinth who have created for themselves markers. We'll call them markers. Markers by which they seek to convince themselves and convince others of their spiritual status and standing in God's sight. Markers by which they seek to convince themselves and others of their spirituality. For some, it's a leader. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Paul. 
In other words, they are attaching their spirituality to a man, a human leader. I identify with him. Therefore, I assure myself of my spiritual status and standing in the eyes of others. For others in the church at Corinth, we haven't got there yet, but we'll get there quick enough. It's a spiritual gift. I have the gift of tongues. I have the gift of prophecy. I have the gift of teaching. I have the gift of knowledge. I have the gift of wisdom. I have the gift of healing. I have the gift of miracles. Look at me. This gift sets me apart, and it assures me of my spirituality. It assures me of my status and standing in the sight of God. For others, it's a personal discipline, the one that is very prevalent, and we've dealt with it already, is the gift of celibacy. And some believe that asceticism and celibacy in particular is the way, the path, the means to a higher plane of spirituality. I'm not going to get married. And I am married, but I'm going to divorce my wife. And the reason I'm going to do this is because I'm convinced that celibacy sets me apart. It's a marker. It identifies me as exceptional. It identifies me as being particularly spiritual. For others, it is a cultural practice. And this is what we saw in the eighth chapter. And so there are people in the church at Corinth, apparently a significant contingent, who wander up on a Friday night to the temple of Aphrodite there overlooking the city. Or maybe it's the temple of Apollo or the temple of Poseidon, one of a plethora of Greek gods from that pantheon. And uh, they're entering the temple and they're sitting down. And they're participating in these feasts and eating this sacrificial food that is offered up to these Greek gods. And they are saying to their brothers and sisters, look at me. This is knowledge. This is spirituality. I'm practicing my God-given Christian liberty. And they are seeking to convince themselves and others of their spiritual status and standing. And the church is in disarray. The church is in chaos, and the result is divisions. Make no mistake, my friend, this is a subtle sin, but this is a very prevalent sin. We can do this. We can do this at the drop of a hat, and we can do this oftentimes unaware, even unthinkingly. We can do this with our spiritual gifts. We can do this with those ministries that we are involved in. We can do this with our doctrine. We can do this with our leaders, past and present. We can do this with our views on schooling and parenting. We can do this with our views on any number of social issues and causes. We can do this with our talents, our abilities, our learning. We, like that, can turn these things into markers by which we seek to convince ourselves and convince others of what? I'm spiritual. Look at me, my standing, my status in the sight of God because of this, this thing. The result is divisions. If the gospel of Christ crucified does not occupy the center of our lives, we will create markers 
by which we seek to convince ourselves and others of our status in God's sight. Those who champion this kind of knowledge, let me just belabor this a little bit because it is very important and it explains a lot in our own lives. It explains a lot as we just look at history. It explains a lot when we look at the life of any local church over a period of time. Those who champion this kind of knowledge want to be noticed. That's what they crave. And when others don't recognize them, the result is anger, it is envy, it is discontentment, it is resentment, and it is bitterness. And this leads to relational chaos. There is distance where at one time there was closeness. There is suspicion where at one time there was trust. And there is downright animosity where at one time there was compassion. Those who champion this kind of knowledge do not love others for Christ's sake. Their love is provisional. It is self-serving. When expressing an opinion, when defending a doctrine, when engaging in a ministry, when championing a cause, they are searching for something. And if they don't get what they want, their love quickly morphs into contempt and downright disdain. Thirdly, those who champion this kind of knowledge construct their own image of other people, what they are and what they should be. They seek to satisfy their desire to be recognized by constantly comparing themselves with others. So what is 1 Corinthians all about? Paul is simply unmasking this kind of knowledge. He is simply tearing the mask off and revealing precisely what is going on in the church at Corinth, he tells them and he tells us that the only marker of Christian identity is love. goes back to what he says in chapter 8, verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. This love isn't puffed up. This love doesn't tear others down. What is the easily identifiable mark of this love? It is a desire to build up. And it is a desire to build up to such a degree that the individual is willing to surrender all. That's what he's dealing with at the church of Corinth. He's dealing with people who aren't prepared to surrender anything. Dealing with people who are insisting upon their own rights. This is the world in which they live. They're not building one another up. They're not building one another up because ultimately they don't love one another. They don't love one another because now we're even into this question of whether or not they love God. No, here's their, here's their basic operating principle. They're seeking something. Striving for this, this sense of spirituality, status, whatever. Idea that they're trying to present before others. And they have turned all of these things into markers. And one by one, Paul is simply picking them apart, picking them apart and going back to the origin, the root cause of this chaos and this division in the church at Corinth. And he makes it clear there in chapter eight, the first few verses. No, here is the mark, the one mark of Christianity, of what it means to be in Christ. It is love. And we know this love because it desires to build up. And we know when we really desire to build up because we are prepared to surrender all 
in order to achieve that end. You don't believe me, says the Apostle Paul, just look at my example. And that's what he gives them in the ninth chapter, his example. Now, you think that might be a bit arrogant of him to appeal to his own example. So just look over for a moment at chapter 11, the opening statement, verse 1. What does he say? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Nothing arrogant about this. By appealing to his own example, he's appealing to the example of Christ. Yes, be imitators of me, but only because I'm imitating the Lord Jesus. And so that's what he gives us then in the ninth chapter, an example of what it means to surrender all in order to build up as an expression of love for God, thereby a clear marker of his identity in Christ Jesus. There are three parts to his example. We considered the first last week, the first 18 verses of the ninth chapter. Here it is again. Paul has surrendered his rights for the sake of the gospel. And so he begins the ninth chapter by reminding them, hey, I'm an apostle. No dispute. You, no disputing the fact. You know that. You all agree with it. Number two, I have certain rights as an apostle. I have a right to food and drink. I have a right to get married and take a wife along with me if I so desire. And I certainly have a right to financial remuneration. You haven't paid me. You haven't remunerated me financially for those 18 months I labored among you. But I never insisted upon my rights. Never once raised it. Never made it an issue. Why? Because I didn't want to create any stumbling block to the gospel. I didn't want you to think that I was only preaching the gospel in order to make money. I didn't want to get engaged in those conflicts that were happening among you where you were championing certain leaders. I didn't want to create any confusion, do anything that might have stood in the way of my one all-encompassing desire, which is to preach the gospel of Christ crucified. So you know what? My rights, I was willing to kiss them goodbye. Why? Because a desire to build you up. And a desire to build you up, why? As an expression of my love for God. An expression of my love for God, what? There's the only marker of Christian identity. Now there are two additional parts to his example. And they begin in verse 19 of the ninth chapter, right through to the end. Follow along now as I read them for us. For though, says Paul, I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I had become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. Keep it under control, 
lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There you have it, parts two and three. In Paul's appeal to his own example of one who has surrendered everything as an expression of his love, love being the only marker of Christian identity, status in God's sight. So number two then, number one was last week, the first part. Number two now we begin with, it's right there in verses 19 through 23, and here it is. Paul has become a servant of all for the sake of the gospel. So look at what he says in verse 19 at the start. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Look at what he says in verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Again, in a nutshell, he has become a servant of all for the sake of the gospel. Notice a couple of things here under this heading. First is the following. Notice his urgency. His urgency. Verse 19, again, maybe you picked up on it as I read these verses. If you didn't then, you will now. Very important. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might, what? Win. Win more of them. Verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, it's the fifth time he uses the word. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now he mixes it up a little bit in verse 22. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might, this is what he means by winning, save, save some. I do it all, he says in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in the blessings of the gospel. Go with me just for a moment, still in chapter 9, go right back to verse 16. Look at the last statement in verse 16. It is, it's exceptional. What does he say there? It's an exclamation. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This, this is what drives me. This is my sense of urgency that I want to win people. I want to save people. I want to share with them in the blessings of the gospel. Oh, my friend, please understand this. Paul is not so desperate to win people to the gospel. He is not so desperate to win people for Christ. He is not so desperate to save people because he wants to shape their political ideology. That's not what he's after. He is not so urgent because he wants to secure people's health, wealth, and prosperity. 
His sense of urgency does not arise from his desire to solve people's life problems. His sense of urgency doesn't come from a longing to impart meaning or give some sort of purpose to life. He wants to win people, meaning he wants to save people. Woe to him if he does not do so by means of the gospel. Why? Because there was something very real to the Apostle Paul that I fear is not quite real to us today. Any guesses? Hell, some of you just shuddered at the mere mention of the word. Hell, we don't talk about it much anymore. There was a time when the church did. Today, in polite company, hell. The idea that people are going to hell the mere notion, thought for the Apostle Paul, men and women, boys and girls, who without Christ will enter a lost eternity in a place called hell. This accounts for his sense of urgency. I don't think I share that urgency today. I'll confess that before you publicly. And I'll hazard a guess that many of you probably empathize with me in that. The reality of hell. You know, if you aren't a believer, you're sitting there right now, you don't pretend to be a Christian, not a believer. For those of who are Christians, and we're thinking of unsafe spouses, unsafe family members, unsaved neighbors, Friends, colleagues, they are going to hell. I know it, 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 it. I shudder just saying the words. It seems so unreal, doesn't it? It seems so surreal. It's not the day and age in which we live. For Paul, it's there in living color. It compels him. This desire whereby he is prepared to surrender, sacrifice all, become a servant for all. Why? He wants to win some. Let me just add to that a little bit. For uh, me, my two cents worth, if it's even worth two cents. I think evangelicalism is off message. I don't think it. I know it. We are off message today evangelicals in this country. Off message. Many are seeking the praise of the ungodly. Many spend their days tweeting and twitting about the latest newspaper headline and controversy. Many are seeking cultural relevance. Many are just hammering this, hammering that, spewing venom against this, against that, seeking I don't know what, and we are off message. Our neighbors are going to hell. We have but one message. What must I do to be saved? It is the gospel of Christ crucified. 
This drives the Apostle Paul. It accounts for his urgency. And notice, secondly, it is the sense of urgency that thereby determines his strategy. Because he is so urgent to win some. What does he say in verse 22? I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And he gives a couple of examples what he means. Basically, I know it seems a little convoluted in verses 20 and 21. I'm outside the law. I'm under the law. He's under the law. He's outside the law. What's he talking about? Simply referring to Jews and Gentiles. And he's simply saying, hey, look, when I'm among the Jews, I live like I'm under the law. I'm not really under the law. I'm no legalist. But when I'm among them, you know, if it's not going to compromise the truth or disparage the gospel, they don't eat pork. I won't eat pork. I couldn't care less. I'm trying to win some of them. When among the Gentiles, they roast a pig, apple in his mouth, I partake. For me, I can leave it, drop it at a moment's hesitation. It does have no relevance to me. It's of absolutely no importance at all. Hey, look, even when I took Timothy along with me, I was ministering among the Jews. I had him circumcised. I had him circumcised. I didn't think the gospel was at stake in this condition, but so that I could get a better audience so that they would actually listen to me, I, 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 I became a servant to them. And so I had Timothy circumcised. But when Titus and I were ministering among the Gentiles, I didn't have Titus circumcised. No, 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 no. I became all things to all people, servant of all. Why? That I might win some. This becomes his strategy. He is convinced that Christ transcends all cultural allegiance. Being a Christian is his basic identity. And this informs his strategy. No, it ought to be our strategy. It doesn't mean we compromise the truth in the name of cultural relevance. It doesn't mean we engage in cultural practices that are glaringly contrary to God's word. That's not what Paul's saying. It means simply this, that we don't confuse cultural preferences with the gospel. And we don't allow cultural differences to become stumbling blocks to the gospel. Now, when it comes to, you know, sort of cross-cultural ministry, leaving here, going there, we get this. It's pretty simple. So all those years ago, when Allison and I went off to, to Portugal, what did we do? We learned Portuguese. Why? Because we're no longer in Canada. We were in Portugal. We started to read books of Portuguese history, begin to find out what are the cultural markers, historical markers, what is of significance in the Portugal mindset, start to understand the Roman Catholic Church and the hold it had upon society. We began to eat Portuguese food, listen to Portuguese fado. It's a style of music. Still listen to it today because it developed a real taste for it. And on and on and on it went became all things to all people, all these cultural things. And we adopted a lot of things we never would have done back in Canada. And guess what? We dropped a lot of things we used to do in Canada that we couldn't do in Portugal because they were maybe somewhat confusing or maybe even scandalous in some instances in the Portuguese mindset. We became servants to them in order to win them. We get that. That makes good sense. Where we struggle is in our own cultural context. That's where we struggle. And here is our twofold dilemma today as Christians seeking to win some. A dilemma as I see it, and I have no problem stating it. I have a real problem identifying the remedy for it, however. But here it is. 
our twofold struggle as we seek to become all things to all people and understand that our identity in Christ transcends culture. First is this, the politicization of the church. The politicization of the church. How are we going to preach the gospel of Christ crucified in a culture that finds it increasingly difficult to differentiate the gospel from a particular political agenda? Do we care? That is a profound question. How are we going to do it? What drives our sense of urgency? Second is this, the secularization of the culture. Are we still fighting battles that were lost years ago? Are we driven by a desire to preserve a certain cultural identity and a certain way of life or by a desire to win people for Christ? I don't have the complete answers for those questions. Things I'm working through, things I'm struggling with. Even as I anticipate going back to Ontario. Oh, you've been away 10 years. Oh, there's been a seismic shift in Canada in those 10 years. And the idea of going back, implanted into that situation again, becoming all things to all men culturally that I might win some for Christ. Oh, this, this, this merits our thought, doesn't it? Our careful thinking. Does, is our strategy determined by our sense of urgency or is our urgency elsewhere? If it's elsewhere, that will determine our strategy or perhaps even our lack thereof. Paul's urgency drives his strategy. They're fascinating points of discussion. But in the larger context, in the breadth of what he is saying and arguing here, what's his point? Yeah, urgency, strategy. I'm only saying this to make one central point. And the point is this. I was willing to surrender all. I was willing to become a slave of all. And I'm telling you, that's what it means to build up. And I'm telling you, that desire to build up reveals what? I love God, and therefore I'm known of God. And guess what? The fact that I love God and known of God, that is the only spiritual marker that matters. Not all these other things, Corinthians, that you're half crazed about. Not all of these things that you're identifying your spirituality with and your status and and, and everything else in the sight of God, your own eyes, and the eyes of others. No. It's simply this. Those who love God are known of God. Those who love God will build up the church. Those who build up the church will be prepared to surrender and sacrifice all for the sake of the church, the good of the church. You don't believe me? Here's my example. Part one, part two, part three. Verses 24 through 27. Paul has disciplined himself for the sake of the gospel. And here he makes a tremendous comparison between himself, between the Christian and the athlete. And so we might think the Super Bowl is next Sunday or the uh, NHL All-Star Game was last week, Australian Open, whatever kind of sports you like. You think of those athletes and you think of the lives they live, those men and and women and and the commitment and the years of devotion, the years of self-control, the years of discipline, driven and competing. And Paul says, you know, I'm kind of like that. Right? He's speaking metaphorically here. 
And Christians ought to be sort of like that. And he makes three comparisons. He says, first of all, look, I seek a prize. Verse 24, just like an athlete, do you not know that in a race, all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Fascinating, historical, cultural note. In the city of Corinth, every two years, they held the Isthium Games. Nowhere near as popular as what we know as the Olympic Games, but popular enough in their day. Every two years, the Isthium Games. Paul spent how long in Corinth? 18 months. It's very, very possible that he witnessed the Isthium Games. Even if he himself didn't witness them, he knows his audience will be very familiar with them because they were an entire cultural and societal event. And he said, you think of those games and you think of those wrestlers, you think of those javelin throwers, you think of those runners, those boxers, everything else. Why are they doing that? Because they're trying to win a prize. That's why we do it. That's why I run the way I do. I'm trying to win a prize. Back in chapter 4, verse 5, he has told us what that prize is. Each will receive his commendation from God. Oh, to receive a commendation from God. Oh, to arrive before God on that judgment day and hear himself declare, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, that's my prize. That's why I run. He makes a second comparison in verse 25. Because he has a prize in view, he exercises self-control. So look at the 25th verse. Fascinating what he says here. Every athlete exercises. In the Greek, it is the verb agonizomai. Agonizomai. Forget the zomai. What are you left with? Agony. Agony. This is something I expend myself here. It costs me. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And think of those Isthium games. Think of those men and those women who participate in those games. And why do they do it? They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Do you know what the wreath was made of, apparently? Celery. A life's commitment to win the Isthium games. For a crown of celery, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. I think they would have understood his point. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Why do we do it? We're after an imperishable, something that will exist for all eternity and stand the test of time. And because we're driven by this, we are prepared to agonizomai. We are prepared to exercise self-control. Well, it's difficult to surrender our rights. It's difficult to take a back seat. It's difficult when people don't recognize just how special and exceptional we're convinced we are. It's difficult to leave our cultural entrenchment. It's difficult to love others, especially those prickly pears. It's difficult to leave the comforts of our subculture. It's difficult in this day and age not to be cynical and judgmental and critical. 
Then we need to exercise self-control, don't we? And understand we are competing for a prize, a crown that is imperishable. Third comparison. Paul knows. This is frightening. I won't sugarcoat it. He knows that disqualification is possible. Some of you look a bit shocked. That's what he says, verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. What would be the point of that? I discipline my body. I discipline myself. That idea of exercising self-control, keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I thought I won. Eh, didn't win anything. Disqualify. It's Matthew 7, isn't it? On that day, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Eh? Lord, did we not perform these miracles? Lord, did we not do this? Lord, did we not do that? And the Lord says what? Depart from me. No reward here. No crown here. Depart from me. For I never knew you. Oh, to be disqualified means that Christ isn't in us. Hear this statement, please. Our understanding of these verses hinges on this statement. Are you ready? Paul knows that his faith in Christ would be false if he failed to follow Christ's pattern in loving others by proclaiming the gospel. That's all he is saying. Let me repeat it. He knows that his faith in Christ would be false if he failed to follow Christ's pattern in loving others by proclaiming the gospel. Oh, there are some fascinating subplots, let's call them, fascinating subplots, unbelievably timely and profitable lessons in these verses. I mean, we should, as you read this text, we should develop a sense of urgency when it comes to preaching the gospel. When's the last time you shared the gospel with anyone? When's the last time I shared the gospel with anyone outside of the context of here on a Sunday morning? Am I urgent? What does my life say? Do I really manifest any sense of urgency? There's an important subplot. Here's another. We need to give serious thought to how we engage our culture. This culture is moving at at a rapid rate. It is unbelievable. And if we're still identifying Christianity with the culture, we're at the wrong end of the stick. This culture is secularized and it is moving at a neck break speed in that direction. How are we going to engage it? How are we going to adopt a winsome approach to reaching our neighbors, speaking into the culture, rather than a, a sort of this accusatory, self-righteous posture, almost, I say, spiteful at times, far too prevalent among us, How do we disengage the gospel of Christ crucified from a political agenda? How do we reach people and win them for Christ Jesus? Here's another important subplot. We should consider what it means to discipline ourselves for the purpose of evangelism. What's that going to look like in my life? What's that going to mean? How I live, how I use my time, how I expend my energy, how I spend my resources. All of those are fascinating subplots and profitable for reflection, meditation, application, prayer. But don't misunderstand Paul. 
they actually aren't his main point. They're not his main point. What is his main point? He's simply appealing to himself by way of example. Look at me. I'm an, imita- I'm an imitator of Christ Jesus. Look at my example. And I want you to notice three things in my example. Number one, I have surrendered my rights for the sake of the gospel. Number two, I have become a servant of all for the sake of the gospel. Number three, I have disciplined myself for the sake of the gospel. Yes, lots, lots of interesting points in there and lots of things we could discuss. But, but I'm, I'm appealing to my example for a reason. I am giving you an example of what it means to surrender all, forego your rights, deny yourself as a means to what? Build others up. And where that desire takes root and where that life is actually lived, that's a manifestation of love. And please understand this. That's a manifestation of love for God. And please get this. Those who love God are known by God. And please get this. It's a far cry from that knowledge of yours that is puffing you up and causing divisions in the church at Corinth. That is his point. He's going to bring it to a climax in the 13th chapter. Just take a glance as, we, as I seek to whet your appetite. Go all the way to chapter 12. The very last statement. He's building, he's building. He starts this, this sort of ascent there in the 8th chapter. and He's going to keep climbing, climbing, climbing. And what's the last thing he's going to say in the 12th chapter? And I... I will show you a still more excellent way because my brothers and sisters, you are not on an excellent way. That's his point. You have adopted this knowledge that puffs up and creates these divisions. Now here is a still more excellent way. It is to love one another as an expression of our love for God. Oh, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you might implant such love deep within us, that it might be our motivation, it might be our impulse, it might be our joy and our delight, and that this love for you might be made manifest in love for others, and a love that shows itself in serving others, surrendering our rights, and giving up all for the sake of the gospel. We are incapable in our own strength. We wander by nature effortlessly. And so we pray that daily you would draw us back by your spirit and by your word and make these truths sure and certain realities in our lives. We ask it again for the furtherance of your kingdom. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.